The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So the Holy Spirit ministry to the world. What does the Holy Spirit do in relationship to the world? Well, the answer is found in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But, but what does this mean? How does the Holy Spirit convict the world of anything? Well, the verb that lies behind our word convict has two main meanings. It means to reprove or to convince. The meaning must be determined by the context. So in the tra- if the translation is to reprove is chosen, the idea will be that of reproving someone or some group of people for an error previously held or a wrong previously committed. But if the translation is to convince is chosen, the idea will be that of convincing them of some truth previously unknown or unrealized. So in this passage, the choice would therefore be between the work of the Holy Spirit in rebuking the world for sin without any necessary thought of salvation or a work of conviction concerning the true state of things so that the world might turn from sin to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. But which is it? Well, the fact that it's the word world that is spoken of here favors the idea of conviction. I mean, in John's Gospel, the word world is most often used to denote the world of unsaved men the world of unsaved individuals. But unfortunately, it's not that easy. Because, for one thing, nowhere in Scripture is the Holy Spirit pictured as having a ministry to the unregenerate world. He is said to restrain the world from evil. He is said to convince those whom God has chosen to be his own, uh, convicting them of their sins and to lead them to repentance and faith. But the work of convicting the, the entire world of their sins is really seen at the great white throne of judgment when Jesus points out their sin. Additionally, not all the items mentioned in the following verses are reprehensible. That is, they are not all deserving of condemnation as an unregenerate world. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says he's, he's going to judge the world of sin concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now true, the world can be reproved for its unbelief as verse 9 states, but it can hardly be reproved for righteousness because Christ goes back to the Father, verse 10. Nor can it, or can it be judged because of the prince of this world is being judged. So for these reasons it would seem best to consider the passage as involving a slight departure from John's use of the word world. And true, still the word, the word world applies to all men who are unsaved. But the work is a divine power of conviction that in spite of the darkness and resistance of the carnal mind brings those whom God has given to Christ in repentance. So thus bringing them out of the world of men and into the light of the glorious Savior. 
In this light, the passage becomes the greatest statement of the Spirit's work of convicting and regenerating in all the Bible. So what is exactly, then, is the Spirit doing here? Well, number one, the Spirit convicts of sin. And the first reality is that Holy Spirit convicts of sin is seen in verse 9. He convicts about sin because people do not believe in me. Now, this can mean three aspects here. He will convict the world of wrong ideas of sin, which they have because they do not believe. He will convict the world of its sin because without conviction, they will not believe. Or he will convict the world of sin and unbelief. So, John, if the translations here are clear, and I believe John could be using all three of them, but I think the main one that fits our passage is the second one, that he will convict the world of sin because without conviction they will not believe. So the Holy Spirit is convicting those whom God the Father has given Jesus as a love gift. And the root sin is unbelief. This is what's being convicted of here, unbelief. And do you see why we constantly preach and teach that the Christian reality, that it's the spirit that must be in the center and control of your life? Anything less is sin. Big I is on the throne of your life. When you make your own plans and your decisions, you make them all based on what you want without any consideration of God. And so allowing the Holy Spirit who has saved you and regenerated you to take over is what is the plan here, what Christ is trying to do in this conviction. So how the Holy Spirit convicts is really in two aspects here. A, he secures the verdict of guilty. Like a prosecuting attorney, he secures a verdict of guilty against the world. They can't just try to be better. They can't just do their best because all men are born sinners. There is a need of a Savior to save them, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so we understand we are sinners. It's not something like you're worse than me or I'm worse than you. It's got nothing to do with that. You're born a sinner. All of us are. The Bible tells us that by Adam's sin, death passed upon all, for all have sinned. And secondly, he brings the guilt home. He brings the guilt home. He brings this guilt home to the human consciousness so that men and women are disturbed by sin and seek to alleviate the concern. Now, an example of this ministry occurred on the occasion of the Holy Spirit's coming in power on the day of Pentecost. The disciples had been gathered together and And they were just waiting because Jesus had said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. In other words, Jesus said, I am going back to heaven, but I am going to send you a comforter. But don't do anything until he comes. The reason is Jesus knew they could do nothing without him. And so it was some 50 days until the Spirit came. And we're told that the Spirit baptized them with cloven fire and with wind. And they, there was this big event that took place, so they knew the Spirit was there. If the Spirit had come like he does today, when you and I accept Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, it doesn't come with big fanfare. 
But understand, the Spirit had never been here, and they needed to know he was here. And as a result, they went into the streets of Jerusalem and preached. And Peter preached a sermon. Peter told how the coming of the Holy Spirit was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel and how the Holy Spirit was given to men and women who that might be saved. And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 37. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You see, the Spirit started to convict them in their hearts, and suddenly they knew they were sinners. What do we do? Peter goes on to say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So they heard the message. The Holy Spirit began to convict in their hearts, and Peter told them what to do. And after he answered their question, 3,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, this was a remarkable response, but it was not due to Peter's brilliant analysis of the gospel or his tremendous eloquence. If he had preached this sermon the day before, nothing would have happened. No one would have believed. What made 3,000 believe? The answer is the Holy Spirit had come and begun his work and he convicted them of their sin in the world. This is why they were cut to the heart and asked, what shall we do? They were panic-stricken. Now, you and I can't convince anybody of sin. I can put together the most eloquent message possible, but if the Holy Spirit isn't in it, it's just tinkling cymbals and a gong and gong. I mean, it's nothing. There's one more thing about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in relation to sin, and it's this. The sin that the Holy Spirit convicts men of is the sin of unbelief. Notice verse 9 again. About sin, because people do not believe in me. Notice that it's not the sin of drunkenness, It's not the sin of a lifestyle. It's not the sin of pornography or adultery or pride, though in time that will come. No, it's the sin of unbelief. Why is this? It's not because the other sins are not sins or that they don't need repentance. It's just that belief in Christ, the one thing that God requires for salvation, is that which is the hardest for the natural man to attain. Does the average believer look at unbelief as sin? Absolutely not. Not In fact, they look at it generally as unbelief as being a mark of intellectual sophistication. But do you understand why Jesus never condemned those he was healing? He only asked for them to believe. And to the woman taken in adultery, as we've talked about, seems like we mention it so often, When she was caught in the act of adultery, the law said that she was to be stoned to death. And you recall that that they said, okay, Jesus, here's the law. What are you going to do? And he simply said, hey, any of you who are without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. 
they all walked away. But you recall that when Jesus was standing face to face with this woman, he simply said, where are your accusers? I don't have any. And Jesus said to her, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. He did this all through his healing and everything. He asked, do you believe? He didn't sit down and list all their sins. Because only after you believe and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you can the effective repentance of all the rest of your life take place. Because it's the Spirit that guides us into all truth. So it was the sin that, of unbelief. Uh, and, and so consequently, this is where, and I've mentioned this before, but I just I have to keep saying this. To get saved is not some mantra we utter. And I know I might cause some offense here, but let me just be clear. Getting saved is not just uttering a pat prayer. Okay? And now, I say that carefully because some of you may have done that when you got saved, and I don't question your salvation at all. But too many people say, well, yeah, I was saved because I asked Jesus into my heart when I was such and such an age. Has your life changed? No. Do you have a hunger for the Lord? No. Do you have a passion to change so you can be all God wants you to be? No. Then that prayer was nothing. What Jesus said is that if a man believes in his heart that Jesus is God, that he left heaven and came to earth, that he willingly died on that cross to pay for your sins, and all he asks is for you to believe that when he rose from the grave, he defeated your sins, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus did that for you, you're saved. Then it's the Holy Spirit's work to work in your heart and to guide you into all truth. The second thing is the Spirit convicts of righteousness. Look at verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you'll see me no longer. Now, on one hand, the Holy Spirit will show the world that what true righteousness is. It's an action that's necessary because Jesus Christ is no longer here to demonstrate it. And that's what the Spirit does. And apart from Christ, none of us have any understanding of what God's righteousness is. Now, we may think of righteousness in terms of human goodness. We, we may imagine that some people are 10% good, and others might be 30% good, and still others may be 60 or 70% good. Uh, but then there's Jesus who's 100% good. You know what this does? It just makes you try harder. And the key here is you can never try hard enough because it's not in you. It's in Christ. It's not to try but to trust. It's not to give my best but to give my life. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, and fills your heart, he takes over. And that's the life that God can use. So it's not my efforts. It's not me trying to be good. You know what all that effort leads to? Here's what it leads to. Despair and depression. Because you know you're never adding up. So you know why friends seem to say the wrong things and often abandon you? when you need them most? Because they are flawed humans. And apart from the Holy Spirit, no one can meet your needs. Your needs can only be met through the power of Jesus Christ. 
And that's where we have to put our faith and our trust. So the reality is that his righteousness is totally unattainable. So the Spirit imputes Christ's righteousness into us when we accept him and covers all our inabilities. So giving up my life for his equals Christ living in and through me. So the Spirit is showing us where righteousness can be found, and it's found in Jesus Christ. So here is a great promise that we need to to latch on to. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, which neither you or I can do, but that he will also direct them to Christ, where alone that true righteousness, which we're all lacking, can be found. You see, there is a roaring lion, the scripture tells us, going to and fro in the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And you know what he do, how he does it? Not by wars or terrorists or beheadings, but by making people think that they're okay. I do good works. I give to charity. Surely God won't condemn me for trying. But friend, here's the reality. Once you see yourself as you really are, you realize you're condemned already. It's the Savior who draws you out of condemnation. And this is the tremendous glory. And then third, the Spirit judges Satan. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit will convince the world there is such a thing as judgment, which is proved by the judgment of Satan and breaking his power at the cross. No one wants to believe in judgment. I mean, we want to think that we can do what we wish with impunity and that no day of reckoning will come. And sometimes it seems that way because we sin going, see sin going unpunished in this world. And we think there will never be any judgment. But the, that's false thinking. God is long-suffering in judgment, but there will come a day, and Satan is proof of this. He is now the prince in the power of the air, but a day is coming, and it has been accurately documented in Scripture that judgment will be there. So if an individual will not come to Christ who has died for him or her in order that his sins might be forgiven, and that God's own righteousness might be applied to his or her account, then they will experience such judgment. So how much better it is to come to Christ now in the age of grace? In this day when Jesus is not condemning, but offering grace. Friends, hear the call of the Spirit. Is your current life worth forfeiting eternity with the Savior? Are you willing to walk away from the grace being offered you? It may never be offered again. So what does this do? It brings us to a very key point here. It's your turn. There's one last point that I want to make clear here, and it is true that this whole message is about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts men of sin. That's clear. The Holy Spirit draws men to Christ. The Holy Spirit desires to fill your heart and to guide you through all truth. The Holy Spirit desires to get you through that nagging problem that won't leave you alone. 
The Holy Spirit works to give you the right mindset and the right perspective and the right heart to know that no matter how bad life gets, you have an eternity waiting in glory. The Holy Spirit is working with you to give you a heart of compassion and love for those outside of Christ who don't know the gospel. There are people out there that we criticize all the time for how bad they are, but we were once one of them. And that's why it just frustrates me to no end to hear Christians condemning those people. Man, show them the love of Christ. Raise them up. Go after them. Show them what true love is. And here's what's so important here. Because you are the agency who the Holy Spirit works through. Look again at verse 4, uh, 7 through 8 in our, in our text. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, let me just pause there for a second because, again, let me remind you, the disciples are in a bad way. For them right now, life stinks. And Jesus is leaving them. We're talking th- over three years of bliss. We're talking three years of miracle after miracle, feeding 5,000, walking on water, making the blind see, making the lame walk. On and on and on where you couldn't even count them. And he's going away. And these guys abandoned their careers. They walk, what are they going to do now? They walked away from their jobs. They walked away from fishermen, tax collectors, physicians. You're going to leave us? Yes. Because I have something better. I'm sending you my spirit. And he's going to live through you. Oh, you think it's good now? Just wait and see what he will do through you. Because now you're on my team. Now you're going to serve me and you're going to experience the glory that I've been doing before you. So this means that the Lord is sending the Holy Spirit to believers and that it is the, that he works through them. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, let me just remind you of something. In the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2, and they start going out with a message, they go to different regions where there are believers, and they ask them about the Holy Spirit. They say, well, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And these are believers. So they pray, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So during that, the first, this first generation of the Holy Spirit, people are coming to know about the Spirit, and the Spirit is indwelling them. But the great thing is, for you and I today, now that the Spirit is here, When you accept Christ as Savior, you get the indwelling Spirit. And may I just say this? You don't just get part of Him. You're not waiting for some extra baptism down the road to get a little more to do more. No. He's a person. You can't get a partial person. You get all of Him. What happens down the road when things start to happen in your life is probably that you learn to surrender to Him to let Him do what He was going to do way back in the beginning. He is the one that works through you. But he always works through people. He always works through people. Classic example is Cornelius. Cornelius had an encounter with an angel. And guess what? The angel never told Cornelius the gospel. You know what the angel said? In Acts chapter 11, the angel said, "'Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter.'" He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. This is the angel. He said, go get this guy, bring him in, 
he'll share the gospel with you. And you know, I wonder how many of you sitting here this morning, the Spirit is saying, would you go talk to so-and-so? Would you go talk to that person? I'm sending you to go talk to them. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to be what God wants us to be for his honor and his glory? Or are you content to just live the settled for life? Showing up in church once in a while, getting on with your life. You see, the beauty of the surrendered life is not so much the advantages that it gives you and I as we walk with the Spirit, but it allows you to be used by him for him to the glory of God. And I can't think of any better way to live my life than to know that at some small point, the gospel came through me to reach someone else. What a glorious opportunity you and I have. What an amazing opportunity we have. Now, you may be 16 or 60, 8 or 80. You may have just a little bit of life left, or you may have your whole life before you. But here's one thing that is true. Beginning right now, it can be lived for Christ. It can be given to Christ completely for his use. And you can become a monumental force for the glory of God. So I began by asking you, are you going to hear? Because the disciples weren't listening. Will you hear what the Spirit wants to do with you? Or will you continue to be trapped in your problems? The choice is yours. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace. Lord, I confess life is... It's brutal at times. It's difficult. Our problems are real. They don't go away just because we're Christians. We have a Savior who promised to guide us through them, to navigate for us. And sometimes in the midst of those trials, he literally uses the trial to reach other people. How many times I've seen the struggle that one has gone through only birth new life in someone else. And Father, we are an amazing church with amazing people that you have called to yourself. There may be some here tonight who don't know you as Savior. All they know about Christians is that they're bigots. They don't share love. They criticize And I confess, unfortunately, that's true in far too many people. But God, help them to realize it's not about us. It's not about them. It's about Jesus Christ. And he knew that none of us could ever reach heaven of ourselves. But because of his spirit, because of his death on the cross, he allows his spirit to convict our hearts and to draw us to him, not condemning, but forgiving, loving with compassion, showing a way that we might escape the trials and tribulations of this earth. God, I pray that you would work that in the hearts of every one of us. And if there are any here this morning who don't know you as Savior, I pray that you would direct them to me or to someone else in this church, that they might know beyond the shadow of a doubt God's not condemning, he's loving, and he wants to share eternity with them.
And then, Father, for other Christians who know that there's just so much more to do for you, but we just lag behind. Help us to hear this morning. Get our eyes up off our life and on you, that you might do amazing things. We give you the praise and the glory of what you're going to do in Christ's precious name. Amen. God bless.